welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Masner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Grace, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Renal Cell Cancer Treatment Advances. It's a very important program, and we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. I mean, this program today is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Exalexis, Inc., and a grant from Genentech, and we really want to thank them for their support of this program. Um, and now, I, um, I do want to acknowledge that there are a lot of you on the call today. We have over 158 participants on this call today, and you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants from Austria, Canada, Denmark, Egypt, Malaysia, Poland, and the United Kingdom. So this is a global call as well, and we're delighted that you have chosen to spend this next hour with us um, so that... Um, We'll all learn together all this new in terms of renal cell cancer and treatment advances. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Pavlos Masol. Dr. Masol is Assistant Professor, Department of Genital Urinary Medical Oncology, Division of Cancer Medicine, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Masol will be addressing an overview of renal cell cancer in the context of COVID-19 experience current standard of care, new treatment approaches, targeted cancer therapies, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, and communicating with your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Masol. Yeah, thank you so much for the kind invitation um, to provide an overview of um, renal cell carcinoma, which is the medical term most commonly for what we mean by kidney cancer. And so kidney cancer is the, the sixth most common cancer in men in the U.S. and the eighth most common cancer in women in the U.S. And it, it is approximately twice more common in men compared with women. And usually it occurs in people who are in their sixth, to eighth decade of their life with an average age, a diagnosis of 64 years old for most of the kidney cancers. But people can be, you know, as young as, as three years old and as old as, you know, 90s years old. So it's not set in stone that it's just going to be six to eight decade of life. The other key thing to keep in mind when thinking of kidney cancer is that it's not a single disease. It's actually... A, a, a basket, let's say, of many, many, many different types of kidney cancers. And the most common one is called clear cell kidney cancer. The medical term is clear cell renal cell carcinoma. Um, we call it clear cell because the cells look clear under the microscope. And about 75% of kidney cancer cases are what we call clear cell kidney cancer. The other 25% we call non-clear cell kidney cancer because the cells don't look clear under the microscope. And that 
is an umbrella term, non-clear cell kidney cancer, that includes many, many, many different types, papillary kidney cancer, chromophobe kidney cancer, renal medullary carcinoma, translocation kidney cancer. These are just some of the types of non-clear cell kidney cancer. And importantly, each one has unique characteristics, behaves uniquely and needs to be managed in its own way. So it's important to know exactly what type of kidney cancer you have, because the management can be very different depending on the type of kidney cancer. The other thing to keep in mind for kidney cancer is how extensive the cancer is. Um, is it, for example, localized, which means confined to the kidney? It means that it's just in the kidney. It hasn't yet spread anywhere else. About 60% of cases, um, of kidney cancer cases are localized, confined to the kidney. And this usually with the cancer staging system are what we call stage one, two, and, 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 and maybe three. Um, and I say maybe three because in about 17 to 20% of cases, the cancer may have spread um, outside of the kidney but not too far away, and that we call regional, meaning it's in around still the kidney in what we call the lymph nodes, the lymph nodes around the kidney. We have lymph nodes all over our body, but if the cancer has just spread to the lymph nodes around the kidney in the belly, that's what we call stage three or regional disease. And then we have um, the scenarios where the cancer has spread to other areas further away, and we call this metastasis, or the stage is what we call stage four kidney cancer. Now, uniquely amongst most cancers, clear cell kidney cancer in particular can metastasize. It can spread anywhere in the body, even in the bones of the little finger. That Not many cancers can do that, and this is why when somebody has been worked up for stage four kidney cancer, it's a good idea to look in, in, in multiple different areas using um, various imaging studies. There is no blood test to detect kidney cancer. There are blood tests to detect other cancers, but not kidney cancer. And the other unique feature, unique characteristic of clear cell kidney cancer especially is that it can come back many years after somebody has had surgery. You know, there are some cancers that you're cancer-free for three years or five years, um, and then it's almost impossible for the cancer to come back. Unfortunately, with clear cell kidney cancer, the longest that I have seen from the surgery till the cancer coming back is 45 years. So that's many decades afterwards. Um, but usually, even if the cancer comes back, the longer it takes to come back, the better because it's telling us that the cancer is not that angry. Plus, the other thing is that thankfully, our therapies have changed profoundly um, in uh, the past decades. For, to, to, to give an overview, back in, 19, in the 1990s, the only therapy approved systemic therapy for kidney cancer was something called IL-2, a type of immunotherapy that was FDA approved in 1992. And from 1992 until 2005, there was nothing else approved. 
nothing. But in 2005, we had the first what we call targeted therapies. It was a pill called sorafenib. And since that time, there has been an explosion of therapies, many, many different types of therapies that we now have available as tools in our toolbox to help patients with kidney cancer. The, the therapies that, you know, we would now typically recommend as first therapies for patients with metastatic kidney cancer, most of them were not even available five years ago. So it's, it's, it's wonderful to see that our options are, are improving. And this is reflected to the fact that the, five, the survival of patients at five years after being diagnosed with kidney cancer has essentially doubled over the last 50 years. You know, it used to be 34%, five-year survival of 34% in the mid-20th century. It doubled to about 62% in, in the mid-90s. And now it, it was in around 2008 about 71%. It keeps getting better. So this is the reason why it doesn't help um, as much to just look at all data. Um, the survival, the prognosis of patients with kidney cancer nowadays is, is a very individual thing. And it's something that you should discuss with your oncologist because things change constantly. And when we talk about treatment, there are two big types of therapies in cancer care. The first one is what we call localized therapies or local therapies. And these are the therapies that address the kidney cancer in a specific area. For example, surgery is a localized therapy. You cut out what you see. Or radiation is a localized therapy. You irradiate, you zap what you see. Or you can burn it or you can freeze it. All of these are localized therapies. And then we have the therapies that go all over your body to potentially recognize and kill the cancer cells. And these are what are called systemic therapies. That comes from the word system. And usually, we, when the cancer is early stage, we do localized therapies like surgery. And then if the cancer has spread, then we give the systemic therapies often. Now, one of the things that has changed since last year, as I told you, things change very fast in the kidney cancer field. So one of the things that has changed is now we have what we call the adjuvant um, immunotherapy. It's a drug called pembrolizumab that was FDA approved for patients in what we call the adjuvant setting. And what is that setting? That setting is when somebody has had surgery to remove their kidney cancer. And for all we know, they may still have or not have kidney cancer because it's impossible to detect all of the kidney cancer cells in one's body. And so the idea is whether we can give a systemic therapy to reduce the chances of the kidney cancer coming back if somebody has a very high risk of their kidney cancer coming back. So for some patients, it's not needed to give this immunotherapy. But for some, they might benefit from this immunotherapy. And so that's a big change compared with last year. The other thing that has changed is that nowadays, we used to think that radiation therapy was not helpful in kidney cancer, that kidney cancer was resistant to radiation therapy. We don't believe that anymore. With the current um, technologies, we are able to add radiation therapy as an arrow in our quiver in, in, to help patients with kidney cancer. Now, from the systemic therapies, 
there are three big types that are important for patients with kidney cancer to know. The first one is what we call chemotherapy, the classic old school chemotherapy that everybody knows about. Now, chemotherapy does not work typically against clear cell kidney cancer, the most common type, and for most other kidney cancer types, but it can work against some rare kidney cancer types. So most of the kidney cancers, including clear cell kidney cancer, will be resistant to chemotherapy. But they might be sensitive to two other systemic therapies that are important to know. The first one is called targeted therapies. Those usually come in the form of pills. And those pills contain drugs that are designed to target, hence the name targeted therapies, certain molecules that the kidney cancer cells express. And those are some of the therapies that have revolutionized the care of patients with metastatic, especially stage four kidney cancer. The third type of systemic therapy that also can work against clear cell kidney cancer and other kidney cancer types is what we call immunotherapy. Those usually are given through an IV. And what immunotherapy does is it stimulates the body's immune system to recognize and kill cancer cells. Those are our three big types of therapies, systemic therapies that we use for kidney cancer. Now, um, as I told you, there has been a lot of exciting developments in the management of kidney cancer, but one of the challenges that we have been facing is um, the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, Dr. Ramamurthy will, will go into more detail um, about those challenges, but one of the big things is that patients with cancer have certainly been disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic with higher rates of bad outcomes and death. And this is why in patients with kidney cancer, we prefer that they get vaccinated early and they receive their boosters appropriately. And another challenge that we have been facing is disruption of their care, you know, especially during big spikes in the COVID pandemic, um, surgeries can be delayed um, for, for, for time because we may not have the personnel um, in the OR to do the surgeries, etc. Another challenge that we were facing, this is improving now, is, you know, not having the, uh, the, the loved ones, the caregivers, be close in their visits because, you know, sometimes uh, only the patient would be allowed in the office and not the other caregivers. And, and it's not the same, you know, not having... Just having the caregivers on the phone is not the same as having them um, in front of you in the office. Um, telemedicine has been an advantage. Um, they has improved um, in some ways our care, but in other ways it has um, led to more fragmentation in their care. So we have to be a little bit careful with how we incorporate telemedicine. The COVID-19 pandemic um, forced us in a way to improve our infrastructure in how we incorporate telemedicine, but we haven't yet perfected it. Um, and so this is another topic um, important to the COVID pandemic that um, Dr. Armurthy will go deeper into. And having said that, I will pass the baton to, to him. Okay, well, thank you very much, Dr. Masal. That was really excellent. A wonderful, um, uh, outstanding presentation and setting the stage for the whole program today. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Uh, Chetham 
Ramamurthy, and Dr. Ramamurthy is a medical oncologist, genital urinary oncology clinic, urology department, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Ramamurthy will be addressing the role of clinical trials in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, how research contributes to treatment options, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns, guidelines to promote telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up appointments, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rena Murphy. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you. It's a real pleasure, um, and it's a uh, Honor to be part of this panel, which we've worked with a couple times now before. Uh, so as, as Carolyn mentioned, uh, I'm going to start out by talking a little bit about clinical trials. Um, clinical trials, in my opinion, play a really crucial role in cancer treatment and research, uh, particularly in kidney cancer. Um, trials can offer new treatment approaches in early stage disease. Uh, or they can provide options where few exist in more advanced disease that has been treated already with many other treatments. Um, in my opinion, trials are just how the field moves forward, and this is how we've been able to develop all of those new treatment approaches to kidney cancer over the past 15 to 20 years that Dr. Massal uh, so expertly described. Um, since the approval of sunitinib, um, one of those pill treatments that Dr. Massal was talking about in the early 2000s, you know, there have been dramatic advances in the treatment of kidney cancer with a plethora of new drugs or combinations of drugs approved for the treatment of advanced kidney cancer. There have been advances in molecularly targeted treatment as well as immunotherapy for kidney cancer. And these advances have led to improvements in how long people with advanced kidney cancer are living and now also the percentage of people that we're able to cure with uh, more localized disease. As Dr. Massal mentioned, recent information on using immunotherapy after surgery for kidney cancer has led to a new approval, uh, which is really revolutionizing the space of kidney cancer and how we're treating it uh, even in the earlier stage settings. There are multiple new agents that have been approved on the heels of groundbreaking clinical trials uh, just over the past few years, uh, and more to come. It's a rapidly evolving field and one that, uh, as a physician, is extremely rewarding and gratifying to be a part of. Uh, in the context of COVID-19, uh, trials uh, have definitely uh, adopt adapted quite a bit. And many trials now are making special accommodations um, to allow patients to do certain visits via telemedicine, uh, have made accommodations regarding how to handle vaccination uh, for COVID, including boosters. Um, so do not be hesitant about participating in a clinical trial uh, just because of this pandemic. Uh, we can't let it stop us from moving the field forward and giving cutting-edge treatments uh, to our patients. And so uh, I think that uh, despite COVID-19, um, we've been very successful in, in moving the field forward with these trials 
and continuing to offer exciting treatments to people. I will talk a bit about side effects, symptoms, uh, discomfort, and pain associated with treatment. Um, you know, the symptoms of kidney cancer can be many, often depending on the stage of the disease and what parts of the body are involved. Uh, kidney cancer can cause anemia, uh, which is a low blood count, fatigue, as well as issues like fevers and chills, even though there's no infection going on. Um, and typically, the best treatment for cancer-related symptoms is effective treatment of the underlying cancer itself. Um, and this can involve radiation treatment to painful sites um, or treatments like systemic treatments that Dr. Mathal mentioned that affect kidney cancer cells throughout the body. So oftentimes, the symptoms of kidney cancer can really be improved once you start on treatments for the cancer itself. But the treatments themselves can also have significant side effects, and some of those can be hard to differentiate from the cancer symptoms themselves. One of the mainstays in the treatment of advanced kidney cancer are those VEGF TKIs, which are a pill form of treatment. These include medications such as pazopinib, vaxitinib, sumitinib, cabozantinib, lenvatinib, Tivazinib. These medications can be associated with diarrhea in some, constipation in others. They can be controlled oftentimes with over-the-counter medicines that can slow the gut down like Lamotil or Imodium. Um, and constipation can be managed with stool softeners and laxatives. Medicines can be used for control of nausea, which can be associated with certain pills. Rash, especially one that affects the hands and feet, is a common side effect from these medicines. And a trick for managing this is using moisturizing cream, especially urea-based creams, such as the Utterly Smooth Cream, which I strongly recommend. Um, and prevention is the best treatment in that case. So using these creams right when you start medication is key. In the context of COVID-19, uh, I think it's just very important that you uh, are constantly in touch with your provider team in terms of what things you're experiencing because they're the ones who can be expert in terms of uh, deciding what may be due to a COVID infection, what may need that kind of testing uh, versus what could be due to the cancer or to the treatments themselves. Um, so in the context of COVID-19, we've really been employing telehealth and telemedicine uh, quite a bit more uh, than we used to, which I think has actually been a benefit of going through this pandemic and learning as a healthcare system and as a society. Um, so telehealth enables me to see patients who live three, four hours away, counsel them on their treatments as well as their side effects, um, do consultations for people who would not have had access to sort of my level of care uh, otherwise uh, because of transportation concerns. So there are some benefits through this pandemic um, in terms of our ability to, to learn and adjust. Um, some tips for telehealth and telemedicine uh, is always getting the technology figured out before, uh, before the tea time. So try logging in before. Make sure all of the appropriate software is installed. Um, my electronic me medical record, for example, requires that Zoom be installed on the device that's going to be used. So making sure that's in place so that your physician or provider can see you uh, 
when you're engaging in these visits. Uh, good internet connectivity is obviously an important thing. Um, so getting to a place where there are no dead zones uh, in terms of your internet signal is important. Um, have your questions ready. I think this holds for in-person and telemedicine appointments. Um, have a list of things that you need to have addressed and that you want to talk to your provider about. Um, one of the uh, aspects that we're trying to figure out with telemedicine is just how how do we gain that extra information uh, that we may not be getting because we're not seeing people in person. So if uh, if we're not checking your blood pressure in the clinic, have a home blood pressure cuff and check that, keep a log, and, and tell your provider about it when you're seeing them. Um, and if you have a rash or something that you really want to show uh, your provider, just uh, take pictures and send them to the provider through the portal or, or whatever mechanism that your healthcare system uses. Because I think you have to realize that some of these video calls and things uh, may not have the best clarity uh, in terms of the picture. So uh, preparing for different ways to get information to your care team is really important. And then always, you know, that your care team uh, nowadays is typically able to see you in person. So if there is something uh, more acute going on that needs to be addressed in person, never hesitate to trans transition from a telemedicine type appointment to an in-person appointment. So in order to give everybody else uh, sufficient time, I'm going to stop there and, and hand it back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ramamurthy. That was really a wonderful, just outstanding presentation and lots of information. And I think I know there'll be questions for you as well during um, the Q&A. And, um, and just I think your um, all the different treatments that are available, all the ways to manage treatment side effects, um, just all the all the issues that you raised are such important ones for our participants. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Burden. And Ms. Burden is an oncology dietitian at the Michael, Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and she'll be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Nutrition and hydration are essential, not only in the tolerance to your treatment, but providing you the energy and to do the things that you actually enjoy. Your diet might be modified um, during or even after your cancer treatment just to assist with managing some of the side effects. Some potential side effects we've heard about today already, but I want to add to those um, as they impact um, nutrition and your ability to consume. Um, one thing is a dry mouth, maybe changes in taste, maybe sores in your mouth and a decreased appetite. Diarrhea and fatigue are also a possibility. During your course of treatment, your nutrition needs can change. Um, they may increase, some things may decrease. It all just depends on your unique needs. And so it really is so very important that you talk with your healthcare team. If you have questions about your nutrition or your diet during your treatment, ask to speak with the dietitian. Um, they'll be able to individualize a plan just for you. If you're not able to meet your nutrition goals, um, it, it can result maybe in a, a delay in treatment. Um, so we just want to get ahead of this as soon as we can. So communication is very, very important. Something that I hear a lot from with patients is, oh, I'm overweight, I, you know, I can absolutely stand to lose some weight. And um, just about any time outside of being treated for cancer, that would be um, 
a good time to work on losing weight. But while you're being treated for cancer, we need just to really keep you intact and make sure that your nutrition goals are being met. It's not that you can't have a slow and gradual weight change um, under the supervision of your healthcare team, but um, quick and rapid weight changes are not recommended um, while you're receiving treatment for your cancer. One of the reasons is um, when we lose weight very quickly, we oftentimes use our muscle as an energy source to convert over to protein and to give our body um, what it needs to to to, utilize, to work and do the things that it needs to do to sustain life. The problem is once we start losing that muscle, it's really hard to get it back. And with renal cancer, like we heard earlier, it often shows itself a little bit later in life. And as we age, that muscle mass is so very important that we want to keep it intact. Um, the other things that uh, I want to touch on today are dealing with side effects. And we've heard about some of those today. Um, I just want to reinforce talking with your healthcare team sooner rather than later as side effects arise is the best way for us to help you. Um, it'll help reduce the time that you're exposed to that side effect and um, helping you get to a point where you feel better as quickly as possible. Um, hydration is also something that I was asked to speak on today, and it's oftentimes kind of left off um, of the conversation. I think we focus on so many things that are very important. Um, that sometimes it's just kind of doesn't make the conversation. But dehydration is very, very common amongst folks who are getting um, treated for cancer. One of the reasons for this is when your appetite's not great, you're usually not drinking as much. Most people drink when they eat. And so if you're not eating as much or as often, then that hydration um, may be declining. Um, and so it's so important to, to be aware of this. So just a general rule of thumb. Um, a bit between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day is recommended. Now, things like radiation therapy, um, even some of your treatments may require additional fluid. So knowing what your needs are is so very important. So knowing what your team wants you to be doing is, is where that communication is, is absolutely monumental. But dehydration can actually kind of amplify some of the side effects, such as nausea, fatigue, make you feel dizzy. Um, and so um, it, it's just very important that you know what your needs are and, and, that, um, and that your team is there to help support you. So in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to you and while you're going through treatment. So please connect with them and communicate with them as soon as possible. The sooner, the better. Uh, thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'll now pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Beard, and that was excellent, and I know there will be questions for you during the q and There always are, so th thank you so much. Um, and um, I'm just going to say a few words about um, uh, Cancer Care Services. And our Cancer Care is a national organization, so we um, provide service programs and services to people throughout the country. And I want to describe to you what those services are. Um, and also for our international participants, um, you um, are able to go to our website and post a question or concern there. One of our staff, of course, will assist you. One of our oncology social workers will assist you. We have about 40 um, oncology social workers, so one of them will assist you. And for those of you who use our 800 number to call in our hope line, again, um, one of our oncology social workers will pick up the phone and ask you what your concerns are. Usually people have a specific question and they will address that question and then we'll review with you all the services that Cancer Care offers. So what are those services? 
So we do offer um, support to people um, in coping with, um, with, with cancer, with renal cell cancer, with any type of cancer. Um, we also offer, and that's free, we also offer um, uh, online support groups, which many people find very helpful because online support groups um, don't happen in real time. They actually, not like today's program where you have to sign up at a particular time. They actually run 24 hours a day. And um, they usually run for a cycle of three three months. And so basically, um, and there are many more people in those support groups, and people can post their concerns any time of the day or night. And the oncology social will be checking posts and will be commenting as well. They're all professionally run. and um, But it gives people a chance to post um, when they have time to um, post a concern, a question, or, or get a sense of what how other people are coping. And again, often um, those times are when people have the free moment to do that. Sometimes it is during the day, and sometimes it's in the middle of the night when one might be having trouble sleeping. So those online groups are very, very popular. Um, the other um, service that we offer is practical and financial assistance and co-payment assistance. And these are very important grants that we give to people in the United States. They really help people to cope um, with the costs of many costs of cancer. And um, for example, um, some of those include issues of not having uh, money, enough funds for transportation to treatment or childcare, home care, pain medication. And so these are wonderful services that we've had. Actually, Cancer Care is about well, 78 years old, and all those years we've been offering those very practical and financial assistance that people really do need very much so. We also have a case management unit, and they help with any kinds of services that we don't have. So there's a whole team of staff. So if you're to call and you were asking, let's say you had questions about food, you didn't have um, adequate food, that's something called food insecurity, or just not enough money for food, or for your rent or mortgage, or um, any of any things like that, that team will work with you and will take you to either a, a local regional or national organization or a combination of those, and they'll stay with you virtually until that problem is solved. So just so you know, we don't just give you a whole bunch of resources to call on your own. Um, they actually go with you and stay with you until that, that, that issue is, is resolved for you. Um, we also offer these workshops. Um, they occur, um, we do about 75 of them per year on many different topics. And we also offer um, publications. And we also offer what we call uh, wellness circles, which are smaller groups in which people um, discuss some of their concerns, emotional and social concerns on a lot of different issues. And that's a kind of a wonderful, it's a new program. And people find that very helpful. So I hope this gives you a snapshot of our services. And at the end of today's program, you'll all be receiving a, um, a SurveyMonkey. Probably tomorrow you'll get the SurveyMonkey. Actually, it'll be on, um, yeah, tomorrow you'll get the SurveyMonkey. And uh, that SurveyMonkey will allow all of you to actually um, uh, you'll, you'll get in the survey, you'll be have a chance to comment on the program or give your evaluation of the program um, by comments, but also it'll give you any resource we mentioned during the program. So you'll get the Cancer Care Helpline number, our website, any other programs and services that we think would be helpful to have their specific uh, connections to. And now we have time for q and I'm going to ask Grace to bring all of our speakers on board and, um, and we'll, um, we'll She'll give you instructions how to ask questions, and we'll take as many of your questions as possible. Uh, Grace? 
Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a question for one of our online participants. Um, I just um, quite a few questions, actually. Um, so um, I'm going to start with this first question. This will be for Dr. Masol. Um, is targeted therapy more effective than other types of treatment? Good question, and the answer is it depends. For example, for certain um, rare kidney cancer types, like renal medullary carcinoma, targeted therapy produces essentially zero responses. Um, for other types of um, kidney cancer, targeted therapy is one of our best, if not the best, tool. Um, for the most common type, clear cell kidney cancer, there are scenarios where we really want to incorporate a targeted therapy, meaning a pill. Um, usually those are pills. And other scenarios where we might want to avoid that. So discuss this with your oncologist, depending on the context, whether um, a targeted therapy would be most appropriate for you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and Dr. Murphy, a question um, for you. My doctor recommended nephrectomy uh, to treat my renal cell cancer. What lifestyle changes will I have to make post-treatment? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really great question. Um, and sometimes it depends on the type of surgery that's done. Uh, definitely with any kind of major surgery, there's some healing that's involved afterwards and some restrictions that your surgeon will tell you about uh, after surgery that you should obey to avoid any issues with wound healing after surgery. Uh, the great thing um, about the kidney is there are two of them, um, and most of us are able to get by uh, with just one functioning. Um, there are certainly exceptions to that, um, and uh, that's an individual discussion with, with your doctors. But some things to promote overall good, healthy, uh, good health for your kidney afterwards are to stay well hydrated. Um, that's something that's really important to maintaining your, your kidney moving forward and controlling other medical issues which can damage the kidney long term, things like diabetes and high blood pressure. Uh, and trying to avoid medicines uh, or maybe even certain foods that may uh, affect the kidney function. Uh, so those are things that are all uh, important to do, but the good news is that uh, most people after a nephrectomy uh, have a uh, pretty uh, usual uh, kind of quality of life afterwards. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. And um, question from Ms. Bearden. Um, so renal cell cancer runs in my family, and I know obesity can increase the risk. I cannot seem to lose weight, and I'm concerned I'll have renal cell cancer like my father. What advice can you give me in terms of weight loss? Well, I mean, I definitely would, number one, consult with your physician to see if, if there are any other issues or challenges. Um, that may be interfering with your weight change, uh, maybe thyroid function, et cetera. There are some other 
um, things you can have checked with your physician. But I would get with a dietitian, and I would, you know, tell them, you know, your goals and um, ask for a plan that works best for you. Some people prefer something very structured. Um, some people um, do better with guidelines, et cetera. Um, but it's consistency, and it's about being consistent um, with that plan in order to reach your goals. And it takes time to lose weight. It's actually, you know, making this new lifestyle change. So it can be very frustrating. Um, and talk with your doctor about if you're able to do physical, regular physical activity. Um, you know, energy balance is really the key when we look at weight loss. And so um, it, it's, it's a big picture. It's your whole body that um, that you're that you're using to help lose weight, not only just the food part, but also the exercise. But the food is a very big part of the energy balance. It's what you're consuming. So I would go to your physician, discuss the challenges that you're having, ask for any, you know, if there's anything that's concerning, in a workup, um, and then from there, you know, ask to talk with a registered dietitian to help. Um, taking consideration to your other health needs um, as well, anything else you may be challenged with, and she can work, she or he can work on putting a diet together to help carry you through and help you meet your goals. Excellent. Oh, thank you so much. And um, Dr. Masola, are there any um, like um, uh, genetic markers for uh, for renal cell cancer, or anything like that, that people could see their doctor about as well, or would you have any further comments in addition to that? Like yeah, so um, you're correct. There are the what we call the environmental risk factors like smoking, etc., that can increase the risk of kidney cancer. But there's also what we call the hereditary um, risk factors, the genetic risk factors that predispose somebody to an increased risk for kidney cancer. There are certain syndromes. Um, the more common one and the more well-known one is what we call the VHL syndrome that um, predisposes people um, and families that have this syndrome to kidney cancer. Um, if you're aware um, that your family members have such a syndrome, then it may be worthwhile um, getting tested as well yourself seeing a genetics counselor to get tested for that. And if you indeed have that syndrome, then depending on, on, on the specific genetic syndrome that you have, there are now specific guidelines on screening tests and how often you need to do them. Now, sometimes you and your family may not know that you have a genetic syndrome. Um, and how do we usually suspect that? Usually, if you have a family member, um, close family member that developed cancer, kidney cancer at a young age, like let's say less than 47 years old, that might be a trigger to, to get um, for that person that developed that kidney cancer to get tested because that would be the first person and the one most likely to have such a syndrome. And if indeed such a syndrome is, is detected, um, then other family members can then get tested for that specific syndrome as well to see if they need to follow any screening guidelines. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, very help this is very helpful, and I hope this is helpful to our participants who will go back to his healthcare team with that information. Um, so, um, and this question for Dr. Emma Murthy, should I participate in clinical trials if I have renal cell cancer? 
that is a really, really good question as well. Uh, the decision to participate in a clinical trial is always an individualized one, uh, and there are lots of factors that can play a role. I am a big proponent of clinical trials uh, because, as I mentioned during my segment, I really think that it offers the opportunity to be at the cutting edge of where the field is, uh, and it also helps us move the field forward um, gradually over time. But your body is your own, your health is your own, uh, and there are lots of considerations that go into play uh, when you're deciding to participate in a clinical trial. And we have a very lengthy, informed consent process uh, where you can learn about all of the potential risks, benefits, and logistics of participating in a clinical trial uh, before you ultimately make that uh, important decision. Um, I will say uh, that without all of the uh, patients and caregivers who have participated in clinical trials, we would not be where we are now uh, in terms of the advances that we've made with kidney cancer. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, uh, for Dr. Vassal, what are examples of some symptoms that I should definitely tell my doctor about in my telehealth appointments? So um, it depends on the context. For example, if you are being treated for with an immunotherapy, then um, we are concerned about um, side effects that happen because your immune system may get too stimulated. And instead of just attacking the cancer, it may start um, attacking your normal tissues. And so, for example, um, if your immune system starts attacking your gut, you may get diarrhea. And it's important for your physician to know that you're having such a diarrhea because it might need to be treated um, urgently. And other side effects as well, if it starts attacking your joints, you may have pain in your joints or um, skin rashes or um, a cough. Um, the same goes with the targeted therapies, the pills. Um, those usually produce side effects that are um, a little bit um, more predictable. Um, but if they get really bad, they can, they can cause a lot of issues. So if, for example, you're experiencing a lot of diarrhea, your doctor should know about that. Um, if you're losing too much weight, your doctor and your clinical team should know about that to help you out with this. So symptoms that substantially disrupt your quality of life and are unusual for you are those that for sure your clinical team should be made aware of. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, and this is um, a question for Dr. Ramba Murthy. Um, I was on a finitor Lenatinib. After a year, I was too sick to continue. Now I'm on Finitor only. I have had no changes to my meds for two years, and I tolerate this drug well. Can I expect Finitor to continue to work in the future? My labs are great. Yeah, that's a it's a good question. Uh, I wish I had you know, that crystal ball for all of my patients as well. Uh, I'm certainly hopeful, and it is really remarkable the kind of response that you've had and continue to have uh, to that treatment. Um, I think my 
general counseling to all of my patients is uh, really enjoy the good moments and and live live life uh, uh, sucking the marrow out of each day um, because things can be great sometimes for a long time and sometimes for shorter periods of time uh, and it's impossible unfortunately to predict for any given person uh, a lot of those long-term potentials um, but uh, certainly hopeful in your case and, and the fact that you've had such a great response for two years is 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 really encouraging. And just in terms of frequency of uh, contact with one's um, oncologist, what would you recommend in terms of the, um, or just I realize that in general, I guess, and then we'll ask our participant to take it back to their treatment and healthcare team, but just in general in terms of when things are going well, how often should they be monitored or, or how often should they be in touch with their doctor or, and what kinds of things should bring them back to their doctor? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think um, it, again, is an individual thing, depending on the types of side effects that you may be having from treatment, what the blood work is saying about how things are going. Um, I typically am getting uh, uh, scans to monitor the response to treatment um, periodically, anywhere from every two months to every six months, depending on the clinical situation. Um, and so I think that is uh, a part of long-term survivorship even um, after you've been on those types of treatments. Uh, and so that's a discussion um, with the provider and, and things can always change over time um, as well in terms of how frequently different things need to be done to monitor your, your health condition. Excellent, thank you. And. Um will be the last question uh, for Dr. Masol. Um, I was diagnosed with polycystic kidney diseases, disease. Um, is that the same as renal cell cancer? No, it is not the same as renal cell cancer at all. Um, what polycystic kidney disease is, um, is um, a, a syndrome um, where your kidneys are more likely to develop cysts. Um, those cysts most often do not contain any cancer. So this is not a kidney cancer. However, um, the, they do increase the risk of um, kidney cancer. And so usually individuals with polycystic kidney disease are closely followed by their um, doctors. And these are not usually oncologists, because again, this is not a kidney cancer. So you don't need an oncologist just for the polycystic kidney disease, but you do need a close follow-up um, by your provider to make sure that none of this starts growing um, and looking like a cancer, in which case it will need further evaluation. Excellent. Thank you. I want to thank our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. This has been, we have done this program before, it's true, but this has really been, I have to say, the questions and the speakers' response to everybody has just been amazing. And I just want to thank um, both our our participants and our speakers um, for just this remarkable call today. It's um, really been um, very, very in interesting, very important questions that were asked and, and really wonderful answers for you to then take back to your healthcare team. Now, I do want to just comment on the fact that I know many of you are still in queue because we actually were not able to take all of your questions. 
So I do want to comment about anyone on the call today. If you asked, if you were able to ask a question, if you have a question that you were hoping to get to ask and didn't get a chance to, or if you have a question that you're thinking of asking, I would say all all three categories of you should go back to treating healthcare team because I think, as our speakers have said, those um, your own physicians, of course, know your situation the very best. They know all. Of, they have all your medical records, and they can customize the answer to specifically to you. So take the information you learned today back to your treating healthcare team. Your questions will probably be more informed or you'll feel more confident asking them because we heard today that there was no question today that wasn't, didn't have a wonderful answer for it, that there was, that wasn't an important question to ask. So all, first of all, all questions are important to ask and never hesitate to ask your doctor a question and a question that you've asked somewhere else. See this as a role play to asking your doctor to some extent. Um, and so um, definitely do that. We also know that you always like to, many of you, like to go to um, various websites to check out information. So we will, when you get the Survey Monkey evaluation, we'll give you a few really specific um, organizations that are really well respected um, to get information about um, kidney cancer and its treatment. That's really important as well. And please use those sites because they're really very carefully monitored. They're very much up to date, and they're and they're really wonderful sites for you to have. Um, we also, for those of you who would like to follow up with any services from Cancer Care, you can call Cancer Care at, at our 800 number, or you may visit our website. And this applies in terms of the services, the financial assistance programs. Those programs are for people in the United States. However, for for those of you internationally who have questions about your treatment you're um, getting some support and emotional support, support groups, um, getting some financial help with your care, please post it on our website. And we will then, one of our oncology social girls will address your question so that you can, we'll be referring you to a place in your country or in a surrounding area or in multiple places that you can get help. So understand that these services are available to people um, in, from different organizations internationally and for people in the United States, pretty much in the United States, we can pretty much help with your needs. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with renal cell cancer, any type of cancer. I want you to now know that you are a part of a community of support, and there's a lot of organizations out there that can help you. And we will provide you a listing of those organizations. Um, we will also encourage you to go ahead and contact Cancer Care um, and um, I, and I hope that um, that this program has been helpful to you. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.